The name of the conference is Act the Miracle, God's Work and Ours in the Mystery of Sanctification. And I will address that particular phrase, Act the Miracle, more on Sunday morning. My task in this message is twofold. One, I want to spend the first half talking about what sanctification is, and the second half talking about where it fits in the whole process of salvation from eternity to eternity. So that's the order, and uh, let's start. What is sanctification? The English word sanctify, as you know, is built on the Latin sanctus, which means holy. We don't have a way in English to take the adjective holy and turn it into a verb. Holify does not exist in English. I wish it did, but it doesn't. But in the language of the New Testament, they can. They take the word holy, hagios, and make it a verb. Hagiadzo. And they take the adjective holy, hagios, and make it into nouns. Hagiosmos, and hagiosune, and hagiotes. Sometimes referring to the condition of being holy, and sometimes referring to the process of becoming holy, which we would call, if we had a word, holification. But we don't have that word, and therefore we borrow from Latin and make it sanctification. Now, I don't expect you to remember any of that except this. Whenever you are reading in the New Testament and you see the words, or Old Testament for that matter, you see the words sanctified or sanctifying or sanctification, know you are reading about holiness. There are not two sets of words. Like holy is one set and sanctity is another set. In the Greek, there aren't two sets of words. There's just one set of words. And therefore, if you don't like the word holiness, but you do like the word sanctity or sanctify, you're stuck because that's not going to work for you. They are the same reality in the original. Being holy or becoming holy is what this conference is about. What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to become holy? And I stress both of those, the being and the becoming, because the New Testament speaks of holiness in both of those terms, and it does so prominently. You don't have to finagle anything in order to see this. The clearest place to see both of them together is Hebrews 10, verse 10. It goes like this. By God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So there's have been sanctified once for all. Verse 14, four verses later, it says... By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being 
sanctified, being made holy. So in verse 10, we have become holy. And in verse 14, we are being made holy. And both are there. And all over the New Testament, these are both prominent. The condition of being holy and the process of becoming holy. Neither is minimized. The clearest, minimized, the clearest way to see the condition of holiness, as Paul understands it in the Christian life, is to notice, and I'm sure you have, that Paul, Paul's favorite name for Christians is saints. Forty times in 13 letters, he calls Christians saints, which is simply that adjective hagios made plural, holy ones. So whenever he says to the saints who are at Corinth or Philippi, he's saying the holy ones, the ones who are holy. So it's a very prominent use in Paul's mind, and the connection between that and the word sanctified are seen in, is seen in 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints. So he's writing to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints. Called, they are hagiadzo and they are hagioi because they are holy. God has done something to constitute them as holy. And the process, that's, that's the condition that's so prominent. The process is, is just as prominent. So we saw verse 14 of Hebrews 10. Let's read it again. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we're not completely holy. We're being made holy. Or 2 Corinthians 7.1. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. So bring it on. Bring it forward. In some sense, you are holy, you are a saint, you are sanctified. Now bring your holiness forward. Become holy. Or Hebrews 12.10, our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, as it is seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So God is in the process, day by day, disciplining you with a view to bringing you into a fuller and fuller experience of the divine holiness worked out in your life. So both the, the being holy and the becoming holy are prominent realities, prominent teachings in the New Testament. So whenever, here's the upshot so far. Whenever the New Testament speaks about sanctification... It is talking about holiness. And whenever it's talking about our holiness, over against God's, whenever it's talking about our holiness, it's either talking about the condition of being holy or the process of becoming holy. So, in answer to the question, what is sanctification, I've just restated the question so far. Namely, what is holiness? That's all I've done is establish 
that whenever the New Testament is talking about sanctification, it's talking about being or becoming holy, which hasn't answered the question at all as to what it is, but only rephrased the question, what is holiness? And I think, and I got myself into a, a real pickle doing this, but it was a, it was a good pickle. Um, I think the most important thing to realize in asking the question, what is holiness, is to realize that the New Testament connects our holiness with God's holiness. For example, 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the basis of demanding, commanding holiness from us is that God is holy. Be holy, for I am holy. And notice, it's not an arbitrary command, it's a family trait. That's the way Peter presents it. As obedient children, be holy in all your conduct. Your father is holy. You have the DNA. Now, be the son that you were born to be and get your father's character. It's exactly the way John talks, isn't it? First John 3, no one born of God, having God as their father, makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed, his DNA, his genetic code is in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. You don't have God as your father if you have given yourself over to practice unrighteousness. So the command to be holy is because God is holy. Let's get one more verse on the table. Hebrews 12:10. We read it, let's read it again. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed good, best to them. Our Father in heaven disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Now, it's not a contradiction to say on the one hand, I share in God's holiness because I'm born of God and have his spiritual DNA and the genetic code of holiness in my life as a newborn child of God on the one hand and to say on the other hand, my father disciplines me so I become holy. There's no contradiction there. For a child 
to grow up into the fullness of the character of his father. He needs the DNA and he needs the father's discipline. And so the command that we be holy as God is holy is a command to have a family trait that is written in our spiritual genes and it's a command to submit to all the Father's discipline by which he is bringing into experience what he is working within us. Here's the way Paul talks about that. We need a new self, new man, new person, he calls it, created after the likeness of God in true holiness, Ephesians 4.24. And then he says, put it on. Put on that new holy self. So he created a self. You are a new creation in Christ. And that is created after the image in holiness. After the image in holiness. Created. Now, put it on. So, both the regeneration by which we receive the very spirit and nature of God living out within us and God's ongoing day-by-day fatherly discipline by which he is shaping us after what he's making us within. John 3.10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. 1 Peter 1.14, as obedient children be holy. Hebrews 12.10, as a father disciplines us for our good, we share in his holiness. Hebrews 12.8, if you are left without discipline, You are illegitimate children. Which now simply means that we have restated our question a second time. The first question was, what is sanctification? And we said, that's all in terms of holiness. Therefore, what is holiness? And then we said, It's rooted in what God is as holy. We are coming by virtue of new birth and discipline to share in his divine holiness. So our third question is, what does it mean for God to be holy? Which is why I said I got myself into a pickle because I've never read anybody who could answer that question. So I'm going to do it. (laughs) Right? Well, yes, I am, but you need to know that this is, this is really stretching me to the breaking point, and, and you test all things and hold fast to what is good. I, I just decided I could not make any headway in this conference by not defining holiness in God, because I'm supposed to share in it. Just talk about it or sing about it. So that's where we go next. What is God's holiness? 
Here's my effort. The root meaning of the Old Testament word holy, kadosh, is, as you know, to be separate from or separated unto. It's like separated from the common and the ordinary or whatever, separated, and then devoted to to something other than than that. So this idea of separation is at the root meaning of the word. Now, when applied to God, what does that mean? God's holiness would then be his separateness from all that is not God. That is, his holiness would be his being one of a kind. Or his supremely valuable self, since things that are one of a kind are of supreme value. Let me illustrate this. This is Numbers 20, verse 12. Moses struck the rock, remember, instead of speaking to it the way he was told by the holy God. And God says this. Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people Israel, therefore you will not bring this assembly into the land that I will give them. And what does that mean? You didn't uphold me as holy. You didn't sanctify me. You didn't show me to be holy. You treated me as an ordinary common human being who's telling you something could be ignored and you just do what you prefer to do. Well, I'm not common. I am holy. And when I speak, I will be obeyed. Or Isaiah 8, 12. Do not, this is God talking now, do not call conspiracy. All this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear or be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. In other words, don't lump me into all your other fears and anxieties. I'm not like them. I'm one of a kind. Let me be your dread. Let me be your fear. So these are verses that are pointing to the the transcendent otherness and separateness and uniqueness, one-of-a-kind godness of God. So here's, here's how I try to conceive of it. God is so separate, so above, so distinct from all else, all that is not God, that he is self-existent and self-sustaining and therefore self-sufficient. So he, he once was all there was and therefore was not brought into being by anything, but he is absolute reality forever, eternally being what he was. And we call that, I call that self-existent. Not existent from another, self-existent. 
And he goes on being eternally, and he doesn't depend on anything moment by moment to sustain him. And I'm calling that self-sustaining. And because he's self-existent and self-sustaining, he is self-sufficient. He's complete. He's full. He's perfect. And that's implied, I think, in kadosh, other, separate, transcendent, once being when nothing else was and anything else is only because he wills it to be. And we, Christians, know from the Bible that this is a Trinitarian fullness, a Trinitarian completeness, a Trinitarian perfection, which means that the Father fully and completely knows and loves the Son, and the Son fully and completely, infinitely knows and loves the Father and the, the knowing and the loving of the Father and the Son for each other stands forth and is in the Holy Spirit such that the Spirit himself is that knowledge and that loving of the Father and the Son for each other so that there is a community of love and knowledge that has existed from all eternity and when we speak of his fullness and his completeness we mean together the way they love and the way they know in fullness and in infinite completeness is the totality of their transcendent fullness and completeness and perfection. So when we say he is holy, 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 we mean that. However, there's a missing dimension if we were to stop right there with the holiness of God. He is utterly unique in his transcendent fullness. But because of that, he is of infinite value or of infinite worth. And the reason I introduced this as a necessary component of the meaning of divine holiness is because the Bible talks about holiness not only in terms of his transcendence, but in terms of his morals, his being right or pure or good. There's a moral dimension to this transcendent other fullness. And I think, speaking of his value and his worth enables me to bring that in biblically. That is to say, his holiness includes his, his goodness and his purity and his moral perfection, not just the perfection of his metaphysical completeness. Before creation... I don't know if you've thought about this, but I think about it a lot. Before creation, there were no standards outside of God. He hadn't written the Ten Commandments. There was nobody and no thing but God. What standard would he conform to to be called pure? 
what standard would he conform to to be called good or true or right or holy in a moral sense? And the answer is there's nothing outside God that he could conform to. Which means somehow the moral dimension of the concept of divine holiness has to be defined in terms of something intra-Trinitarian, within God, not outside of God. And my answer to what that is, is this. God's moral holiness, or the completion now of the definition of divine holiness, is that all of his feelings, affections, God hates, God loves, all of his affections and all of his thoughts and all of his acts are in perfect and complete harmony with the infinite value of his transcendent fullness. That's the end of my definition. Which has huge implications for this doctrine, if I'm onto it. So I say it again. You got these these three steps. Other, separate, high, distinct, one of a kind, transcendent, self-existent fullness, an essential component of the concept of holiness. And as completely full and perfect, absolute value in the universe, absolute worth. And then all that he thinks and all that he feels and all that he does perfectly expressing, perfectly reflecting, in perfect harmony with the infinite value of that transcendent fullness. That's his holiness. In which, by daily discipline, he is bringing you to share. How can that be? What dimensions of that do you share tonight? Well, you do. Not the first one. Be holy, for I am holy, did not mean be self-existent, for I am self-existent. That's just a contradiction. He didn't mean that. Everybody knows he didn't mean that. He also didn't mean have absolute worth, like I have absolute worth. There's only one absolute. But oh, it did mean may all your thoughts and all your affections and all your actions come into perfect harmony with the infinite value of my transcendent fullness. That you must have. The beauty of holiness is the conformity, the harmony of every aspect of your life, inside and outside, with the infinite value of the transcendent fullness of God. The opposite of holiness is sin, and the meaning of sin is failing to reflect, to express to be in harmony with God as your infinitely supreme treasure. Anything you do that does not echo 
or reflect or express God as your infinite treasure is sin. That's what sin means. These definitions are flowing straight from the fullness of God's holiness. So, my concluding definition then of what is sanctification is this. Sanctification is the action by which we bring our feelings and thoughts and acts into conformity with the infinite value of God's transcendent fullness. And if you were listening carefully, you might have balked at the subject of that sentence. I said, the action by which we bring ourselves, and you would rightly raise the question, didn't you mean to say by which God brings our thoughts and feelings and actions into complete and full harmony with the infinite value of God's transcendent fullness? Didn't you mean to say that? And, and yes, I do mean to say that, but I did not say what I said mistakenly, which is why this conference is existing Act the miracle, God's work and man's work in the the process of, of sanctification. End of part one. What is sanctification? Part two. How does this, this action by which God and we somehow work together to bring about a a harmony and a a conformity of our thoughts and feelings and actions with the infinite value of the transcendent fullness of God? How does that action, that process fit into the whole scope of redemptive history and the whole scope of God's saving activity? That's what we do now for the next 25 minutes. Or so. And I'm going to use a text this time, and if you have a Bible, I would really encourage you to go there with me. And you probably know where I'm going, namely Romans 8, 28 to 30. Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. One great, glorious sequence of saving acts, right? Verse 28. We know that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, God works all things together for good. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, he foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies. And you and I, in this conference, should ask, where is he? He sanctifies. 
That's what we should ask, and that's what I'm, I'm asking. I'm coming to this text and saying, okay, I have argued that this is a big, prominent reality of being and becoming holy, and that God and I somehow are engaged in this process, and it's important because it reflects who God is, and I'm becoming holy because he's holy, and you don't even mention it. Or does he? Where is it? And my answer is, it is in the beginning as the goal of predestination, and it is at the end as an essential constituent of glorification. And between the beginning of predestined holiness and the ending of fulfilled holiness in glorification, there are these two works, calling and justification, without which a dead sinner and a guilty criminal could never be sanctified. So that's how it fits together. Let's take those four one at a time. Verse 29, it is, sanctification is here as the destiny of the foreknown. Verse 29, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God predestines a group of people to be shaped, molded, changed, conformed into the image of the second person of the Trinity, which I'm saying is predestined sanctification. Conformity to the image of the holiness of the Son is to be made holy like the Son and thus to be sanctified. The reason God has chosen, foreknown a people for himself is that they would have this particular destiny, that they would be a holy, holy people. Which means a couple of things. We're going to be changed into the likeness of Jesus and brought, by being brought into the family. Because now we're called brothers. So God predestined, predestines that we be conformed to a brother. Which means... Exactly like Hebrews 12 said, and exactly like John, 1 John 3 says, we are brought into conformity to the Son by being born into the family. There is a DNA that's going to be given, genetic code of holiness shared with the Son. And the second thing this means is that the Son is not just one of us. He is preeminent that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The term brother is a higher dignity as any human could ask for, to be a brother of the second person of the Trinity. But we're not just one of them. 
We will gather around the Son as our brother, and we will exalt him forever. And the reason we are brought into conformity to him is so that we can taste him, see him, know him, the relationship he has with the Father in such a way so that our praises are what they ought to be in view of his infinite worth. So from the very beginning, God has predestined that we be sanctified, conformed to his son who has the divine holiness that we were talking about. That's the beginning of sanctification. Now the end, verse 30. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And, and you should ask, why didn't he say, those whom he justified, he also sanctified, and those whom he sanctified, he also glorified. Why didn't he say that? What restrained him? And I, I can't answer that with absolute certainty, but here's an answer that I think suffices, very plausible, and it's confirmed elsewhere. Namely, he didn't say that because in his, in his mind, if he's going to use the term glorified, it already contains sanctified. That's why he didn't do it. In, in, in Paul's mind, the process of glorification begins with, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He belongs to that new order where the freedom of the glory of the children of God will one day be revealed to the world. And he knows that this glorification is incremental and will come to its climax at the last day when Jesus appears. And the confirmation of this is in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, conformed to the Son, from one degree of glory to another. So Paul, Paul is thinking when he says back in verse 29, I'm going to bring my people into conformity to my son. He's thinking now in verse 30, I'm going to do it incrementally from one degree of glory to another. We're already new and participating in the glory of that last new creation, and yet it is so slow and so incremental. Or 1 John 3, 2, here's the way I think about the, the connection between 2 Corinthians 3, 18, which I just quoted, and now 1 John 3, 2. Paul said, now we see in a glass dimly, then face to face. So wouldn't it be natural that if beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being changed. It would be incremental because our knowledge is so incremental. I'll tell you, if Jesus showed up here tonight in the flesh, the risen flesh, the glory that he has with the Father right now, you'd be changed quick. And that's exactly what John says in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because 
we shall see him as he is. You see him some now in his word, and thus you are somewhat sanctified. On that day, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, you will be changed because you will see him as he is. So, my answer to the question of where sanctification in Romans 8, 29 and 30 is, it's at the beginning in predestination. You're going to be conformed to my son. That's my plan for you. You're going to conform to the, to the perfect harmony that my son has to my infinite value as transcendently full. You're going to share in that someday. And here is what it's going to be called at the end. And right now it's happening in degrees of glory. You are going to be glorified one day and have a glorious reflection of my son's holiness and its beauty. Now, between those two, predestination and glorification, with sanctification being in both, there are these two works. Those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he, he justified. And those are essential for sanctification because without the divine calling, you'd be still in the grave of your sin, dead as a doornail and impervious to every sanctifying influence of God in your life. And without justification, you would still be guilty and in prison on death row, and God would have no inclination to sanctify you at all because he has destined you for destruction. The remedy for deadness is calling. The remedy for guilt and defilement is justification. So let's take those one at a time as we move toward the end. Calling. Those whom he predestined, he called. What does that mean? There are two ways that the word called is from God to us is used in the Bible. One is a general call that goes out. Many are called, but few are chosen. So calling can mean God's invitation to the world. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. That's God calling. And the other call is the effective, powerful call of God by which he makes that call transforming and engaging and winning. The second kind of call creates what it commands. It's the kind of call that Jesus issued to Lazarus. So Lazarus is dead and buried and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. Because the call effected the command. And that's what he did for you if you're a Christian. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but he had predestined you 
to be conformed to his son. But you're dead. You can't be conformed to his son. You're dead. You have no spiritual inclinations whatsoever. Jesus is boring. Church is boring. Christians are hypocrites. I don't want anything to do with this. And then come forth. Could have been in your mother's testimony. Could have been a Billy Graham crusade. Could have been a pastor. Could have been reading the Bible. Could have been reading a tract. Could have been reading or anything. Could have been having a conversation. God has a thousand ways to issue his effective call. And he said to your soul, awake, live. And it lived. And suddenly out of nowhere, as it were, he wasn't boring anymore. And you couldn't get enough of Jesus. It's called his calling. Now, here's the passage in the Bible where you can see everything I've just said. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 24. It goes like this. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 24, the key text on understanding the effective call of God. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews... Folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now think about that. We preach Christ. We preach him to Jewish people. We preach him to Gentile people. And oh, how many people stumble. Some think that's just a stumbling block and others say that's just foolishness. But among all these Jews and all these Gentiles, some are called. Some among the called are called. Some hearing me call them from the gospel, come, come, whosoever will may come. And within that, there's the called. And what's the difference? To those who are called, Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So they're sitting there in the stands at the Billy Graham crusade or in the pew at the church or listening to radio or listening to you talk over a pizza at Pizza Hut and they were regarding Christ as folly, foolish this morning. And as you're talking, God is calling and their eyes are opening and spiritual taste buds are having all the calluses cut off of them. And you you don't know what's happening to you and you are finding yourself asking a whole different set of questions and by the time you're done, you just want to get home and go flat on your face and deal with the living God who has taken you for himself. That's the call of God. Those whom he predestines, he calls and that's why we can be sanctified because we're alive. It's exactly the same as being born again. I think the call of God effectually and regeneration are the same spiritual event. You were dead and you were made alive either by the seed of God, through the word of God, making you up a new person, or you could say by God saying, come forth from your tomb and live. and you, You're alive. And the 
last act of God is justification in this verse. The first barrier to be overcome was deadness. Can't be sanctified if you're dead. And the second barrier to be overcome is guilt for an infinitely holy God in the courtroom of heaven. And the judge looks at your indictment and he says, this is no question here, you're, you're guilty and you're doomed. That's that. If that if, that's true for every human being on the planet. According to Romans 5, we are all condemned in Adam and then confirmed in our own sinfulness. So how's that going to be overcome? How, how is a, a sentence of condemnation going to be replaced with a sentence of justification? Romans 5.19 As by one man's, namely Adam's, disobedience, many were appointed sinners, so by one man's, Christ's, Obedience, the many will be appointed righteous. So as we have all fallen in the old humanity flowing from Adam, we can all be counted as obedient flowing from the new humanity head, Jesus Christ, as we're attached to him 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in union with Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And, and how, how, does, how do you get in? I mean, that's the best news in the world, isn't it? You're, you're a condemned sinner and a substitute is there whose perfect obedience and perfect righteousness could count for you if you were in him, you'd want to know how to get in. Romans 3.20 By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the answer is you can't work your way in. In fact, if you try to work your way in, you keep yourself out. Romans 3.28 For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So you are in Christ by faith, which God in his calling has awakened within you. And now trusting him, you are united to him and his innocence in the courtroom is yours. His righteousness is counted as yours. His obedience is credited to your account. And now the second barrier to sanctification is overcome. Not only are you alive because of the divine calling, but you are not guilty and the father who once as a judge was sentencing you to hell is now only 
propitious towards you. He's only merciful towards you. Only grace is flowing to you. And that grace is infallibly sanctifying. So let me summarize the whole thing. Putting it all together. From all eternity, God has been holy. That is, God has been transcendent in his self-existent fullness and as such infinitely valuable and worthy such that all of his thoughts and feelings and actions are in perfect harmony with that value of that self-existent fullness such that this is the beauty of holiness. And then he wills to create and redeem a people and he foreknows a people for himself and he predestines them to share in this beautiful holiness (laughs) I can hardly wait till Sunday morning because I've got a quote from Jonathan Edwards that's going to blow you away (laughs) I just Okay, I shouldn't have said that. It's going to throw me off here. But I, I want you to hear the word beautiful. I, the harmony between all that God thinks and all that God feels and all that God does and his infinite worth and his transcendent fullness shared by us. That's our destiny. Predestined unto conformity to the Son. And then he sees we're dead. We can't share the holiness of the Son if we're dead. And so those whom God predestines to that share in holiness, he calls, arise, live, have spiritual life and sensitivity so that I may deal with you toward holiness. And he sees us not only as dead, but he sees us as as guilty and condemned. And so he not only speaks life into us, but he provides a substitute for us so that all our sins can be punished in Jesus and all his righteousness can be credited to our account by faith alone so that now the death obstacle and the guilt obstacle are no obstacle and all the divine energies are flowing toward us to sanctify us holy. W-H and H-O-L unto the fullness of our glorification. And this he does infallibly according to verses 29 and 30. Those whom he foreknew, he infallibly predestined. Nobody foreknown fails to be predestined. Those whom he predestined to be conformed to his son, he infallibly called from death to life. And nobody who is predestined fails to be called. And those whom he called, he infallibly justifies. And nobody who is called fails to be justified. 
And those whom he justified, he incrementally in this life and infallibly in this life moves towards glorification and in the end glorified. And nobody who is justified fails to be glorified. So that existence begins with the beauty of holiness and ends with the universe full of the beauty of holiness, namely full of the saints reflecting perfectly and sharing in the beauty of God's holiness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, words are easy. Reality is supernatural and out of our control and I would just ask that you would come we're going to worship in a little while here and oh how much reason we have to worship and so begin a work a special work a new work in the lives of this people so that step by step from one degree of glory to the next all of us would be conformed more fully to the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.